Spagna 82, one day at a time, day 13. And it's the final, the last day of the podcast. No, it's not. We still got a lot of days to go, but it's a good one. Mick Foley, how are you? I'm I'm all right, Rob. I'm, I'm starting to just hit that yeah. halfway point of the marathon. Now the legs are starting to, you know, yeah. wait to get that second wind. I'll be honest with you. This was a fairly intense day now. England, Kuwait is like a hill in the middle of a marathon. They're on a really bad hill, like a huge hill. England, Kuwait is like the Alp d'Huez of that particular <laughs> marathon. Like, it's do you know what it's like? It's it's like you've been you go to a nice restaurant. They've got a great head chef. They've got a great dessert chef. But the boy they put on the starters is a trainee. It just gets in the way of the main course and the dessert. Oh, that's yeah. that's the truth about England Kuwait. But look, uh, very much looking forward to talking about Northern Ireland against Spain. I mean, whoa, violence. Yeah, but but like also huge, huge, huge win for Northern Ireland. Like in in what I would say is kind of the classic template for Irish football underdog, yeah, victories. Mm. Totally, uh, and just stunned by the the arrogance of the Austrians and the West Germans, like stunned to death by it. Uh, <laughs> it's ju- like, it's hard to believe. It, like, this isn't a new development, you know, billions of people watching World Cups. There were billions watching in 82. It was the kind of thing where they, you know, they thought like, there's no cameras here. We'll just try this and nobody's going to talk about it. But that's the point. Arrogance is the word. Billy Joe Padden, how are you? But I guess that's the thing that's left us stunned here today. It's just they know the crowd are booing and they do not care. They don't. It was. It's a great day for, I was going to say for Anglo-Saxons. Uh, <laughs> when you consider the, the I suppose, the, the Saxons, they originally come from Germany. From or Saxony, that, yes. Saxony, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're flying, yeah, yeah. Flying, flying on the history there, Sam, yeah. Um, and... Uh, and it was it was a very English day or English type day uh, of football. Whereas I, lads, when I signed up to this, I am only here for the Latins, you know, for yeah. the player, uh, no. for the panache, for the bossa nova, you know, that sort yeah, of. Yeah, you've been all over the El Salvador and Honduras games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I didn't sign up. For, I didn't sign up for that either. But when you speak of England and Kuwait, uh, Kieran, you mentioned Alp Duez, and I imagine anyone that does out Duez has a sense of achievement. I don't have a sense of achievement after getting through the Kuwait and Eng- England game. So <laughs> I'd say anyone doing out Duez has a sense of achievement if their legs are still functioning. It's true. <laughs> well, also. yeah, it's, it's hard enough to watch it on television. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of hard enough to watch on television, what a perfect segue to game number one. We've got so much to get through today. That we'll, we've, we've laid it out for you. Uh, let's get to that very, very dry and undercooked starter. England won, Kuwait nil. Yes, game one. England won, Kuwait nil. I suppose coming into the game, Kuwait still had a chance of qualifying. Kieran always saves me in these moments to tell me what yeah, the. Uh, apparently, if they'd won by 4 0 or 5 0, they were flying. 
game on. Which obviously I'm sure they were all highly confident of. That's why <laughs> pre-match we saw them all handing little gifts to the England team. <laughs> this, this was a moment of civility I wasn't expecting in this World Cup. They all had little, you know how usually the two captains exchange is a penance. They're called penance. Yeah, yeah. it varied, like but penance well, now, now, keep keep in mind though, wasn't it, wasn't it, uh, was it the El Salvadorans had a piece of wood? Oh, that's right, yeah. Cup. So, yeah, so yeah, gift, gifting, this yeah. is the gifting, gifting World Cup. Yeah, this is the gifting yeah. World Cup. So, uh, I mean, they gift penance to each of the England team. And I think, you know, you might look at that and say, are they trying to butter them up? I think it's more likely that this is a sign of, this is the match that that Kuwait, I nearly had a Freudian slip there and said another Middle Eastern state. <laughs> no, that doesn't, we'd never um, this is the match that Kuwait were looking forward to. Like the, this is where they measure themselves. They've they've imported English coaches into their league setup. We've already learned that Jeff Hurst is going to be moving there after the World Cup, and he's part of the England management. They've played some English clubs in the build-up to the tournament. Mm. They drew with Villa, Forest, and they beat Manchester City. So this is the game they've actually targeted. It. And you know what, lads? It's. It's a game where England start a couple of, how do I put this? Backbencher is a word I can use for some of the players that get a run in this game. And if Kuwait had a decent striker, they might have won this game by 4-0. Because the experiment... 4-0? Well, 4-0, you'd say? Probably a reach, yeah. Let's say they might have got a win. They did create chances. Like when they ran through the middle, they caused England problems, which to me highlighted... Like Brian Robson's rested for this game. Glenn Hoddle is in, in the middle. There was a big debate at the time about should Hoddle be in the team. I think when you see Kuwait marching through the centre of their midfield, that says Hoddle's not ready yet. And they need Robson steel in that part of the pitch. But beyond that, like England created a dozen chances. Uh, it's Ray Wilkins' 50th cap. His diary entry for... In his shoot diary, would you like it? Yes. Of course. Yes, Please. we need anything on this game. <laughs> anything. June 24th. <laughs> June 24th. Poor Joe Corrigan's nipped a cartilage and is going home. I feel sorry for the big man as there isn't a better professional in the squad. It must Crash. be frustrating for Joe to know that bar a catastrophe, <laughs> he won't get a game. You would really wonder, like, if, it's, if he's that far off being England goalkeeper, <laughs> why not take another outfield player? Uh, he's an example with his attitude and loyalty the team for Kuwait is announced and there are two or, two or three changes from the side that finished the game against Czechoslovakia and then he says at the end from what I've seen of Kuwait they're a team who like to attack a lot which will be in contrast to France and Czechoslovakia I hope we slaughter them <laughs> right. Oh, I just I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry. I cannot, from my memories of lovely Ray Wilkins, God rest him, <laughs> yeah. down the oh, years, yeah. I cannot Careful. hear or see Ray Wilkins saying, I hope we slaughter him. I'm just, yeah, no, it's, no. it's not happening. No, I can't Some either. Guy but he, Taking Are you suggesting that journalists of the time sometimes use these first-person articles and maybe use, I don't know what the phrase is, is it poetic license? Surely not. Rob, have I... you any idea what the cost of a phone call was back in 1982? There's no way they checked. <laughs> 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 yeah, it was it. I can't believe it. 
But this was a fun game. Like, the one thing that struck out to me about this game was the offsides. 17 of them. You counted. How many did Paul Mariner have? About nine? Uh, Quite a few. I mean, look, I think that's a bit of the English influence in that that's the (laughs) organising. If the full Monty had been out, the Kuwaiti team would be watching it regularly. (laughs) (laughs) They had the old Arsenal offside trap down to a tee. And uh, Don Howe must have been brimming with pride on the England sideline. <laughs> it's delighted. I'd say with Don Howe's favourite game of the whole tournament, lads <laughs> stepping out and stepping out, line dancing, in, out, and so on and so forth. Billy Joe, it was a good goal, though. Back to front. It was, yeah, it was. I think, again, it's uh, it, you really appreciate some of these players you mightn't have seen that much of. You know, Trevor Francis... Before my time, really, you know, you you hear, you know, we're not going to mention what he's famous for, but like he's won European Cups, great, great player in Italy, great one of the, you know, probably England's best exports to to Italy, which at the time was the strongest league throughout the eighties, and he just strides onto that ball, knocks it out in front, and a, and a low hard finish across across the goalkeeper. It's one of those ones where you, after the first touch, where you know it's going to take him past the last defender. You kind of know if you hold your head here, it's going to be a goal. So really, really good finish. And, and this, despite the fact that he was suffering from the heat, he's he's quoted at the time as saying, "Once again, it was unbelievably hot." After ten minutes, a Kuwait defender came up to me and said, "Is very hot, Mister Francis," and I thought, "Blimey." <laughs> If he thinks it's hot after the kind of heat they get in the Middle East, then it must be. (laughs) (laughs) That that language of uh, it literally sounds like an episode of Faulty Towers, Mister Francis, (laughs) like if he's chasing him through a hotel lobby or something. It's very hot. It's very hot, Mister Francis. (laughs) (laughs) He's having a great World Cup, though, isn't he? He's a he's a really good footballer. He's a classic case of is he really a, is he really appreciated? Everything was so rigid. I suppose the point I'm trying to make is everything was so rigid to me. It seems in English football then that you know you, you your formations were very rigid. Whereas in some ways, I think looking at Trevor Francis as a footballer, I think he would have even thrived even more now because. He seems comfortable dropping into midfield. He seems comfortable going into any of the wide areas. He can play off the shoulder of the last defender. Whereas very much at the time as a 4-4-2, and if you're playing up front, you're doing a you're doing a Paul Mariner job and you're on the last shoulder, you're holding up the ball. Um, whereas I, I actually think that he, that's maybe why he was appreciated so much in Italy because it was such a well-organized defensive league. They were also astute defensively that you had to have that game intelligence to be successful. And he obviously had that in abundance. Yeah. And as we discussed in the previous episode, like he's, he's come back from a serious injury. Um, and actually in, in the, uh, in the Gary Jordan book out of the shadows, he's quoted regarding that goal. It's, it's the kind of situation I like to be in going head on at a defender at speed. So you're right. Like that, that's the type of play that's going to work for him in Italy. Now, uh, Paul Mariner's booking. Anybody have any idea what that might have been for? No. Yeah, and, and yet a few minutes later, then he gets away with one where he absolutely buckles. And I mean buckles the goalkeeper to the point where we see an old junior football tactic coming in and the goalkeeper has to let somebody else take the kickouts for him for the rest of the game. That happens a lot in this World Cup. I haven't got around to that, but there's a multitude of goalkeepers who do that. But anyway, sorry, your point is, and you no, know, we don't know what the story is there. One of those dodgy yellow cards. We'll get to that a bit later. Do you know, I wanted to say this, Mick. 
shout out like obviously Ray Clements wasn't needed here, but Viv Anderson, Terry McDermott, Peter Witt, Tony Woodcock sit on the bench in a one nil win over Kuwait in a meaningless game, not one substitute made. I get this, I get I'm not speaking the language of nineteen eighty two substitutes. I get I just could never understand it's like a different world, but what is going on? What is like Bring a couple of them on. It's very unfair. What? It's I know, I know. I mean, this is the day to do it. You know, Jeez. I mean, as it is. I mean, who do we get? We get Steve Foster mm-hmm. starting. Mm-hmm. Good old Fuzzy with the headband, and you know, in another year's time, he's going to be belting away with Brighton in an FA Cup final. Here he is. You know, I mean, there's that. Phil Neal is there, but you're right. Like, I mean, Peter Witt. I like to have seen him now, like the old battering ram kind of flaking in at the Kuwaitis, you know? I had noticed, when you look at that bench there, there's four European Cup winners in that. <laughs> in that maybe, maybe you know, multiple European Cup winners uh, in that I think Clements and McDermott should have a couple and, uh, well, no, Peter Witt has one with Villa and Tony yeah. Woodcock probably has two. So it's it's crazy. And, and actually, this might be instructive as to Ron Greenwood's approach to team management. He approached Shilton and said... I'd like to start Ray Clements um, because I think he could do with some game time. And Shilton's response was, I've had very little to do so far, boss. I'd like to stay in goals. I Jeez. need the game time. <laughs> and, right. and he kind of backed down to him. You know, where I think if you've had this situation that they've had now for a couple of years where you're chopping and changing the keepers all the time, yeah, probably would have been fair to continue with that and give Clements some game time because you don't know what's going to happen in the next round. They know they're through. Very true. Very true. Shout out for Steve Foster, who only had three caps for England and one of them's out of World Cups. It's not bad going, really. One third of your caps at World Cups. Right. No, and, and the other thing, Rob, um, that the, we mentioned Ramadan for the Algerians. Yes. You can see its impact on the Kuwaiti players here. They don't even take water during the game. Well, wow. you know, given that it's very hot, Mr. Francis. Yeah, just thinking. Was that yeah. like a psychological thing just to get more into his edge? Damn it. We brought ourselves down to your level here in terms of dehydration. Right. West Germany won. Austria nil. If ever a scoreline didn't even begin to tell the story, what was this? I'm not sure with football, Mick. I'm actually certain it wasn't football. Let's begin with that. To start with, like West Germany, Austria, the disgrace of Hihong. Hihong is <laughs> like one of the most famous World Cup games of all time. Yes. You know, and, and to revisit it in this way. Is it? Because, you know, for the last oh, number of doubt. days, we've been, we've been building up to this moment. We were so looking forward to yeah, this game. Yeah, I was convinced it was going there to be no like... There was no notoriety attached to this whatsoever. I was yeah. thinking, whoa, Belter, here we go. Central <laughs> European Derby. Central European El Clasico. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I'll be honest, right? I'll be honest. I did see something on Google, right? A couple Ooh. of weeks ago. Yeah. And I knew you were excited about it, and I just didn't want to upset you, really, to be honest. Oh, but, but you looked ahead. Hold on. Next sorry, thing you'll be telling sorry. me, Brazil, don't win this. We don't even begin that's, to. Don't, even, don't you even start. No, no. <laughs> that's, you're mad. You're mad. Brazil um, won Northern Ireland nil. That's the final. That's the, the final. Can't, yeah, cannot wait. Um, it one of the most notorious games uh, in the history of the World Cup, um, but one of the 
again, one of the perks, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, of going back and um, watching these games is to actually get a sense of when was it? How notorious was it? How bad was bad? How bad was Did they actually, was it a fix? Did it look like a fix? Did it feel like a fix? All these questions. I don't know if this duck quacks at the time. Because mm. um, I went through several issues of shoot for the following weeks. And the only mention it warrants, you know, at a time when you're talking about fixing in a World Cup is the controversial game between Germany, a single sentence, yeah. the controversial game between Germany and Austria. And you're kind of going, you haven't informed us in your pages what was controversial about it. Yeah. Um, but is it like, is it a case of, yes, it's a fix or is it that once um, we've got the goal from... I don't, how do you pronounce Rubish. it? Rubish. Rubish? Horse Rubish. Rubish. Yeah. So once we've got the goal, are the Germans paralyzed by the fear that Austria might equalize and therefore put them out of the World Cup? And us, are the Austrians paralyzed by the fear that Germany might go farther ahead and put them out of the World Cup? Possibly. Before we go any further, right, let's just deal with the permutations here, first of all, Please right? Do. Because this sort of, this is, this is obviously central to the whole operation. For Algeria to go through, who of course are the, are the, uh, the third, the, the, the other woman in all of this, um, they need a German loss or a big German victory, actually, by 3-0, 4 at least four goals, right? Austria to go through, they just needed to avoid losing by four goals or more or a win or a draw. And West Germany simply needed to win. 1-0 which it was after 11 minutes, after Rubesh sort of bundled, it was like a pushover try, cross, kind of bundled it over. I think it hit off his knee and his head all at the one time. It, it was a Ginger um, McLaughlin goal. Oh, a, pure, a, a props goal imagine? all day. People anyway, around the world was, will not even begin to reference. It doesn't matter. Okay, okay. It People just, around the world, Google Ireland, England, rugby, Ginger McLaughlin. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Saved ball by comes Google. across. Clumsy striker hits it with knee and head at the one time from about two inches out. In it goes. One nil after 11 minutes. So now we have a result that puts Germany and Austria through at the expense of the Algerians, if they so wish. What transpires in many people's eyes is one of the great disgraces. I it is a disgrace, but I, I'm I'm watching it and I'm just going to give you my take, right? And you can take it whatever. I felt that the first half was a, a fairly normal game. The Germans are still going after them. The Austrians are playing a bit, not much. They're terrible. The Austrians are worse than terrible, but the Germans are trying. Litbarski is going for it. Dremler is putting a couple of tackles in. It's it's happening. About five minutes before halftime, things slow down. But in my head, I'm thinking, well, this is what's happening in these World Cup games. Teams run out of steam. They're taking, you know, they're just 30 degrees, yada, yada. Third, blah, blah, blah. It's hot, Two minutes Mr. Foley. Yeah, it's hot. It's hot. It's hot. It's two minutes into the second half, the crowd start cheering and whistling and shouting out, out, out and chanting Algeria, Algeria, Algeria. Before Morgan's here has kind of gone, oh yeah, this has gone to the dogs. They're, they're already ahead of me. So I would they obviously say, overheard the conversation at halftime that we're all speculating. Yes. You know, yes. everybody leaned in as the players walked to the tunnel and overheard them saying, <laughs> "You on for the fix? You on for the fix? Yeah, I'm on the, for the fix." <laughs> yeah, let's do it. The sight as they go off the field is certainly incriminating. Yes. Germans and Austrians with their arms around arms each other's around shoulders, each other, yeah. chatting, yeah. chatting. Doesn't right? look good. Doesn't look good. We'll get on to the we'll get on to the detail of who says what to who in a little little bit, but. 
I'm just going to, this is just my take on it. I'd be curious to see what you think. With a half an hour left, I say, yeah, this, they've now decided they're playing for one nil. And from there on, it's, it's, it's an absolute joke. Now, it's no more of a joke than Ireland versus the Netherlands in the 1990 World Cup. With 15 odd minutes to go, Ireland were one down, Niall Quinn equalises, and suddenly they're all going through. No, it's that was no just worse a than that in my mind. Mate. No, it's different. <laughs> different. There was a lot of balance in that, that game. I think that, huge no, amount no, no. of balance. How do I know, Rob? I think that green and white flag, green, white, and gold flag is cutting off the circulation to your brain there, loosening up a bit. Like, so like, I I just think that, that that's my take. It's clearly the Austrians start in a way and play in a way that I'm shocked at because the relations between Austria and West Germany are bad for the last four years, football-wise. So I would have thought, they would, they, if innocently, if I was coming to this game, I would have they're going to give it. And they speak in that way before the game. They say, we're going to give it a go. You know, we're, we're, going, we're going to have a rattle. It would be brilliant to beat Germany, all this kind of stuff. If we were to send the Germans home, it would be a national holiday, said the assistant coach, Felix Latzke. They completed the final, their final he's, training he's actually section. the joint manager. This, 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 the joint manager situation with Austria has made me laugh so often because it's either yeah. one of them or the other is named as manager yes. and the other is named as his coach when sure. it does appear to have been. Now, you mentioned bad blood with Germany. It's the Germans that have stopped this Austrian team being managed by Ernst Happel. And I don't think he's telling his Austrian team to sit back in any way. He's telling them to yeah. go at them and play with a bit of flair. Like the Austrians have even had their final training session behind closed doors. They're at their final press conference. That's they were having to... seven at the back and they didn't want anyone yeah. to see it. <laughs> they say we want to surprise the Germans a little. Well, what a surprise. I, I think the key difference here between this game and Ireland, the, main, the game you mentioned in uh, Ireland against the Netherlands in 1990 was that you saw, I, I can't remember, was it Cascarino or Quinn was running around the field. I think Rude Hullett had to have a word with him to, to calm down. Yeah, Cascarino the, the, the was running guys, around. The like guy that was, isn't in on it is always uh, yeah, the, he was the, running around the, risk in this. Who, di- who didn't we tell? Like you let a calf out of the field after yeah. being wintered, you know, just running <laughs> yeah. around like jumping and leaping like an idiot. Uh, so I think it is entirely possible that it's something that evolves in as the game is being played out. Um, you know, I suppose I, you, you know better than me that the footballing relations, but you know, I'm all for political alliances showing themselves through world football. You know, if, any, if, if experiences has taught me anything, that that's something that we all should embrace, uh, particularly you know, in, in world, world Cup times. The, the, just in relation to the game and watching it as well, it is a bit of a farce when you look at it. There, no, there were no tackles. And God knows, did we see a few tackles in these last couple of tournaments we've watched. So I think that's the greatest indicator. Yeah, like the stats, the stats say it all. Uh, for the second half in particular. There were only three shots in the second half, none on target. West Germany made a grand total of eight tackles, eight tackles in a half of football in 1982. Both sides, their overall pass completion ratio was an excess of 90%. Austria, this is, you know, I mean, this is the tiki-taka. Austria had a 99% success rate with passes in their own half and West Germany's success rate was 98% in their own half. Like, I mean, it's it, it, we, it's clear what's going on in the second half. Those kind of stats would seem to indicate that at different spells of the game, one team just took out benches and sat on the sideline watching the I other team like hold that, possession. Though. It was, it was walking like that, football. You know this new modern phenomenon for people who just can't do yeah. the old running on AstroTurf anymore? It was walking football. But the, but there are, <laughs> like, in the aftermaths, the, the quotes from various individuals involved. I mean... The German manager, Jupp Derwall, says this is a grave, serious insult to suggest there's a fix. 
And I mean, yeah. there are there are a couple of the Austrian players, Mick, who who say they don't know anything about what's going on here for years afterwards. Absolutely. Walter Schachtner, who's, you know, they've got like, they've probably got two top, top class players in this team. Walter Schachtner, the striker who plays in Italy, and Friedel Concilia in goals. And both of them will claim after us that they knew nothing about what was going on. However, well, Schachtner's version, he later claimed, this is years later, claimed that at halftime, some German and Austrian players had agreed to keep it 1-0. However, he was not informed about this, and so he continued to try to score a goal. And he only found out about this sort of arrangement after the game. Concilia, if you if you if you if you train your ears, you can hear him roaring at the at his teammates at one point in the second half. And he was appalled that they were just falling asleep in front of him. But like the, it's like anything. I mean, you know, you don't, and you know, you, you kind of touched on it there, Karen. If if you're going to pull off a, a conspiracy like this, you don't need to tell everybody. You just need to tell key people. And in the German context here, I would have thought the goalkeeper and your your star striker are very pivotal to that. Oh, you know. But at the same time, like they maybe they know that if if Concilia, if they had said it in the dress room, this is what we're going to do beforehand. Maybe they knew that Concilia and Schachner would be strong enough. Characters go, no, no, this is not what we're doing. I don't know. But like they, they claim they didn't know anyway. Walter um, Schachner from, gets himself a yellow card in 74 minutes. Fair play to him. He I does mean, for, for dissent because he gets kicked. I mean, to be fair to the Germans, I mean, in terms of keeping the pretense of a game, they do con- continue to kick Schachner they, all they com- game. They committed eight to tackles. the one guy that may not have been in yeah. it. Those eight tackles were on together. Walter Schachner. <laughs> Walter Schachner. And Prohaska as well in midfield. But like they... From the German side, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know precisely what happened here in terms of whether this was an organised thing or not, I mean, you will come across umpteen players who say, oh, we knew nothing about it, it was just the way it went, but but at the same time, we had to manage the game. I think it's, uh, you know, if you read my friend Tony Schumacher's book, uh, which I have. Are, are we not you? Have we seen music from the for the book? Reading, reading for the well, book in, of Schumacher? Let's, He says, in relation to this, there was no formal agreement between the Austrians and us over this, but we had a kind of tacit understanding. Breitner, that being Paul Breitner, had made it more or less clear to me, one nil was all we needed. It was laughable. And then he speaks about the crowd. The crowd start waving white towels at the players at one point. I felt ashamed, says Schumacher. Was a German team like this capable of beating Italy and becoming world champions? Why he picked Italy, I don't know. I didn't think so. So at this Do point, you think he's, he has a benefit of hindsight writing this. Uh, I don't know. I think he's a fairly honourable kind of guy, from what I can see. Breitner, seeing as Breitner is mentioned, because I think he's he's an interesting character in all this. As as we have learned from the book of Schumacher previous to this, Kyle Heinz Rummenigge is the captain, but he's a quiet guy. Breitner appears to be the alpha male in the dressing room. Now, in relation to this, Breitner has said he said he told a, a German TV program on ZDF in 2006 that the behavior at the time was not reprehensible. After all, every team would eventually start to, in inverted commas, manage a result. The German and Austrian teams had just started earlier than usual. He says, though, that the error, that was the error, that they started too soon. That error dogged us for the rest of the tournament. All the matches that followed were played under a cloud, which only went away really in some at, at a later stage that we will discuss. Uh, he's also said in another interview, after 70 minutes, if a game is over as a contest or both teams are satisfied with the result, then maybe it's time to take it easy until the final whistle. But we made a fundamental error. We started taking it easy just before halftime, and naturally, that was a terrible mistake. 
Now, you would think that the organisers of a tournament like this, uh, what, what you call that crowd? They're based in Switzerland. FIFA. They've run a few of these, yeah? Had the odd they, one, yeah. They, 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 they know how to do this stuff. Ah, they're uh, brilliant at it. You would think that they would be concerned by the development of a result like this. Juicy mm. think so. coming up, yeah. Were they not? The West, the West German FIFA representative, Mr. Hermann Neuberger, who just happened to be president of the West German FA, vice president of FIFA, and president of the organising committee for this World Cup. Oh, really? Yeah. All those things All in those one guy doing it. Things he's he's not, he's got no he's not worried. There are no. no FIFA rules which say teams cannot play as they please. FIFA cannot sanction a team if they did not fight properly. Like this isn't boxing. FIFA should be very concerned about what's developed here. And they are uh, to blame for it. I mean, you and, and, and I would, a situation. I would think, yeah. I would think all the people that we suspect in various conspiracies related to FIFA at the time should be concerned. Horst Dassler should be concerned because he owns the marketing rights, the TV rights and Adidas. He mm-hmm. should be concerned by something like this damaging the future marketability, marketability of his tournament. So why, why is he not? Or why might he not have been? Well, I suppose he does own one of the largest employers in West Germany. So perhaps there was a boost in morale. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Perhaps. Hans Crankle had a boost in morale on that full-time whistle. By God, he punched air. I mean, just rein it in a little bit. Uh, yeah, now, look, I mean, we're all big fans of his music, but I don't think I was a big fan in this moment. Let me just say Hans that. Crankle. Hans Crankle was asked. Of course, all the players were asked after whoever they could grab uh, the press, you know, what happened there. And uh, Hans Crankle's response was, I don't know what you want. We are qualified. That's it. Do you know, what more do you want from us people, you know? Reinhold Hintermeyer played midfield for Austria that day. He played with Nuremberg in, in, at that period in the, in the German Bundesliga. Uh, he, did, he gave an interview to Kicker magazine about five, five years ago, 2017. This came up. And his remark was, usually you're happy when you get through, but there wasn't any joy. You were a bit surprised and also ashamed that you did it, participated in it. Everyone was aware that this story was not a glory page for us. So like there is, you know, years later, there is there is regret. Immediately after his regret, George Schmidt, the Austrian manager, says it was a shameful performance. He said, I came out of the match rather disillusioned and I think our supporters must have felt the same. I'm not afraid of a FIFA inquiry, or is that FIFA? But I fear it could happen. If it does, I will be ready to answer charges. Now, on the FIFA inquiry, as Kieran has mentioned, it wouldn't exactly be their number one thing to be driving down because, you know, no rules are broken or anything. But they did, Algeria did ask for an inquiry and the wording... And I'll be honest, I'm, this is a translation back from German, so I, I could be slightly off here, but you get the spirit of it. We call on FIFA to cancel the game for lack of fighting spirit and to exclude Germany and Austria from the tournament for violating the spirit of FIFA rules. There is a hearing. It lasts three hours or so. And the appeal is is rejected, struck, thrown out. So there is no comeback. Karl Heinz Forster German defender, I can understand the expressions of displeasure from the Algerian fans. You had Algerian fans in the crowd burning banknotes, uh, trying to scale the fences. You can see during the game that police are trying to get over to push people back into the ground or back into the stands. I can understand the expressions of displeasure from the Algerian fans a bit because it looked as if it had been agreed. You couldn't watch the game in the middle of the second half. That was a non-aggression pact. 
All right, let me just jump in here with a couple of specific kind of looking back questions. And I'll go to you first, Billy Joe. Like, if it had been Algeria involved in this game with West Germany and the little underdogs were getting through, would it be remembered in the same way and Austria were the ones who suffered? Um, I, I think so. Uh, I think it, it, I think it, maybe not to the same extent, because I think Algeria, in, not in, entertained, inspired people with the way they played their football. They were a bolt from blue. People all over the world wouldn't wouldn't have been as aware of the qualities that they had. They were so dynamic in that first game against against Germany. Uh, it was you know it was thrilling football. And then you see this, which wasn't football really at all, and that exacerbates the whole thing. But if it, if it had gone the other way, it would have it would have had a similar impact. FIFA generally, or any other bodies that run other similar competitions, and now have do as much as they can to negate this possibility with the games being played at uh, on the, at the same time uh, for the final qualifying games. Yeah, I, I I think it. I think this was probably the the defining moment and the the. To use a terrible cliche, the the straw that broke the camel's back. I think this is cold, hard European pragmatism, just cutting out the little guy. And I come back around to our old friend Horst Dassler. Like, this is an unusual game in terms of the commercial side. But so West Germany, obviously, are heavily Adidas branded. They're one of the biggest sponsors of the World Cup, Adidas. ISL, the management company that Dassler owns manage all the sponsorship sales for FIFA. They've become the most powerful commercial body in world football. And as a, as an aside, Austria, they're sponsored by Puma, which is run by Horst Astler's first cousin, Armin. So these are two German businesses that might be affected commercially were that appeal to succeed. I don't think the Algerians really expected any appeal to succeed. Yes, they were unhappy with how things transpired. I found a quote from Shaban uh, Merzikan, who was their fullback. We weren't angry. We were cool. To see two big powers debasing themselves in order to eliminate us was a tribute to Algeria. They progressed with dishonor, but we went out with our heads held high. That's a pretty, like, that, that, is a, that is as succinctly as you could sum up what's occurred in this game. And fair play to them. They went home with their heads held high. They sure did. I mean, it was one of those ones where, you you know, sometimes you get this in, in sport where you don't actually remember the victors. It's the, it's the guys who don't win are the ones that live longer in the memory in terms of the quality of their character and their reaction. Like, and I mean, to be fair, I mean, there was, I mean, the reaction, um, like a group of West German fans went to the team hotel and started barracking the players from out front. And the, what did the players do? I mean, can you believe this? The players came out and bombarded them with, with water bombs from their balconies. I mean, could you be any more Marie Antoinette about something? Like, I mean, look, there's, there's you know, you've got a, a former German player, uh, Willy Schulz, said they're all gangsters. Like, in their own press, one headline, shame on you. One Spanish newspaper called it the Anschluss call back there to 1938. Wait, which of the TV commentators just stopped doing commentary? Was that the Austrian broadcasters yes, the Aust or the Germans? The Austrian broadcast, the Austrian commentators said, uh, just switch off your television. Just switch off television for the second half. It, it's, it, this is, this is you know, this is the overarching reaction. Meanwhile, Jupp Derval is still going, we didn't, we wanted to progress, not play football. And that's, that seems to be it. Lothar Mateus who came on the second half, who by the way, you know, apparently uh, was told at one point in the second half after he came on, he was told by Breitner to cool it, like, you know, calm down. 
uh, and his his uh, remark afterwards was, "We have gone through it. It's all it comes. This is it. It's it is that, as you say, that pragmatism, um, just bleeding through, uh, facilitated by the failure of FIFA to actually run the competition properly by having the final group games all played off at the one time." And and some people have asked, you know, postscript about Bob Valentine, the Scottish referee, could he have done something? There wasn't really anything in the rules that would allow him to do something. He looked angry in that bull time, was it? I've decided I might be projecting. Well, I think he's he's been associated now with an absolute disgrace. Yeah. And, you know, when you're going out as a referee, you're trying to make sure that all the players leave the field safely, that it's a fair and equal game, that it has been a contest that you've not influenced one way or the other. And in this instance, he has no influence because the two teams just decide what's going to happen. Why does it? Why does it have to be a contest, Billy Joe? Like, like in this, and this is sporting philosophy I'm putting on you. Like, why? Why is it wrong? Because I suppose we we're all meant to believe in that. You, you uh, the whole essence of competing is that at all stages you do your absolute best to win, and and. And there's a there's an honor in that in itself that if you if you, you compete even when you know the, when the odds are stacked against you you still compete, but I suppose the, the, these circumstances um, through no fault of the Austrians or the Germans were uh, facilitate manufactured facilitate whatever were and they found themselves in a situation where the pragmatic thing as Kieran says probably the cold hearted uh, clinical thing to do was what they did and and i can totally understand that because sport probably started off as a pastime and as the years have gone on these things have become more and more important to not just the players but to the communities and the countries that they represent and 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 they demand success and i think that this is a, an example of the way those things get married together and sometimes you make decisions you do things on the field that aren't totally honorable Mick, i'm just wondering you mentioned that the germans had stuff thrown at their hotel i wonder what the reaction was for the austrians because i have found <laughs> at some point in the tournament on one of their days off they went to the bull ring in oviedo and oh god this is from Shoot, actually. One of the Toreros, Andreas Campuzano, got wind of their presence for his performance, and when he was awarded one of the bull's ears for his performance with the cape, he promptly turned around and lobbed it to the Austrians as a gift. Oh the footballers, however, were horrified by the freshly severed ear and simply turned tail and fled. <laughs> so I'd say if there was any action at their hotel, the boys would have been hiding. Oh, a water balloon to be gone. I don't know if there's anywhere else to go with this. I do think it's worth, though, just maybe reflecting on something that was said by the head of the Austrian delegation as well. And I think this takes in an awful lot of the the attitude towards Algeria, the attitude towards what happened on the day. And it, it, it encapsulates that sense that they just shut out the little guy because they just could. The head of the Austrian delegation, Hans Schack, he was reacting to the Austrian or the Algerian protests in the stands. And he said, of course, we played tactically today. But if 10,000 sons of the desert want to ignite a scandal here in the stadium, that only shows that they don't have enough schools. Here comes a shake from an oasis, gets a taste of World Cup air after 300 years and thinks he can now open his Oh, my God. Oh my! That's like so that bad. It's what you're that dealing so with bad. in 1982. I'm actually emotional. That's what you're dealing that with. 
All right, let me let me finish on something that's just a lighthearted note. We did mention Republic of Ireland versus Netherlands. For those of you who've decided, I don't know, at some point in the future, to totally relive every World Cup the way some people relived, like Drive to Survive, a series of Formula One, not knowing what happened. Maybe you haven't got to the 1990 World Cup yet and you're just living it with us. Sorry to spoil this. But anyway, going to 1990, when Ireland did draw with Holland in those closing stages, so they both went through. You know what team? Do you know what country? suffered the most because of that little pact that Ireland did in the last few minutes? Take a guess. Egypt. Not Egypt. Austria. Because it was all to do with third place really? finishers, you see. Austria only had two points. They were under the two, along with Scotland. Okay. So, sorry, Scotland. So when, when, that, yeah, so when, that pro- when that province of the Netherlands drew with Ireland, that, that was the outcome. <laughs> Sons of the uh, mountains, oh, let's not go there. Right, enough of that. Uh, moving on. We're going to go to game number three. Northern Ireland won, Spain nil. Has Mick Foley just taken out a Northern Ireland scarf? <laughs> no, an imaginary one. Oh, lads, two things, right? Like, great upset. We said off the top, and Mick, I'll, I'll let you straight in here. We said off the top, this mm. is one of the all-time great upsets and a real, like, you know, superb victory for the Northern Irish team. But on top of that, as this game develops, I'm developing more and more dislike for Spain. And I nearly roared when the goal goes in. And by the full-time whistle, I watch, this is on the rewatch just a couple of days ago. I'm buzzing. I'm just delighted for them. It's a real triumph over, like, you know, justice over whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. It's a triumph over violence, violence, is what it is. Pure violence. I mean, so much, so much in this game. Like, Northern Ireland won, Spain nil. The one result that the Northern, even the North, outside of that squad, and I'd say even within that squad, a, a share of them didn't believe it was possible. Um, but they did it, and they got through, and they topped the group, no less. Um, and how they did it, in a game of such raw Aggression, violence, brutality. I cannot, I, I, I've seen clips of matches that were from the 80s, from that era that were dreadful. But just in terms of a full game, I cannot remember watching as violent a match and certainly not as violent a first 45 minutes. It was absolute war. Yeah. Yeah, I, there's no doubt about that. I, I suppose it, it, it gives you a bit of a window into what football in Spain was like at the time. We all hear the stories of the, the butcher of Bilbao. And, you know, we, you know, <laughs> throughout the 80s, Maradona is the player that dominates that decade. And I suppose his, the big takeaway from his, his football in Spain and the, in the years after this World Cup were, were how the injuries he suffered and the, and the violence that uh, were, was perpetrated against him. But I think what you have... You're, you're exactly right in what you say, Mick, but I think there's an element of it as well where Northern Ireland show incredible physical courage yes. to stand up to that. Absolutely. And knowing they're going to get kicked. To, like. Yes, and continue to put their bodies on the line, whether it be in a defensive capacity uh, and maybe more impressively sometimes in, you know, they, they played a lot of counterattack breaking out of their defense and there was a lot of hard running and it was co- consistently referenced in the commentary that we watched it. I think it was at uh, Jimmy Hill and John Moxon, yes, was it? Yes, it was. Uh, um, and it was consistently referenced about the, the hard running physical nature of the game plan that uh, Northern Ireland put into place. And I know we'll probably get to talk about individual players later on in this discussion. 
But I, I think it's important to point out that at no stage, both physically, did uh, Northern Ireland take a step back, or, or at no stage did you know did did it impact on them mentally because their concentration levels from the first minute into the extra minutes after the ninety that were added on, um, did they let their concentration wane? Let's let's give a sense of the scale of this, okay? In three of the previous four World Cups, the host nation has won. The only one that didn't was Mexico. Spain are fancied. Yes, they're physical. There's all that side to it, but they've got a you know home support behind them. Northern Ireland come into that game walking wounded. Their injury list in the lead up to it. Jerry Armstrong has a right knee issue. Martin O'Neill has a hamstring strain. Norman Whiteside's ankle is dodgy. David McCreary has a bruised rib. And if it was if it was bruised, oh, sorry, <laughs> I misread that. It was a bruised thigh, but he has bruised ribs by the end of this game, and that's a certainty. Jesus, um, like, but and Bingham, like, he was very smart in the lead up to this. There was speculation that he didn't want to see the Spanish, you know, give the Spanish the opportunity to see them train at the venue, so they didn't in in advance. But I don't think it was that he was trying to hide anything. Like, there's nothing. Rev- revolutionary about the game plan. No, I think he was literally trying to save all their energy for this performance. And man, do they give a performance! Energy is has been central and key to Northern Ireland throughout this tournament already, and it speaks to what Bingham brings to it. And where Billy Bingham sits in all of this is interesting. But just as a his ethos as a coach reflects where he came from as a player. He's a, he was a, he played in the 1958 World Cup. He was a, he physically a small player in the, in in that era. So he had to go and, you know, do a physical regime to get himself right. He actually did it with the same physical trainer that worked with Mary Peters many years later who won a gold medal uh, at the Munich Olympics, but he physically built himself up and always put an enormous premium on physical fitness and conditioning. Um, no, there was very little he could do with Northern Ireland when they land into their training camp in Brighton. But at the same time, he would have known that pressing and pressure was going to be central to their survival. And indeed, the goal comes off of pressing and pressure. One of the things he asked them to do at the Brighton training camp was run a cross-country course. Uh, Martin O'Neill recalled it afterwards. So he said, come back in 18 minutes. See, can you do it in 18 minutes? Only three of the players managed to break eight. Do you have the list of who? Can we um, guess? We don't. Well, I don't know who they were. I don't know who they were. The point. The po- Billy Hamilton would not. <laughs> Billy Hamilton in twelve and a half minutes. I say. <laughs> uh, like they, it, but it's that it's that intensity of effort is all over this. The other thing that's interesting about this, and I don't want to labour it too long. This is what I love about doing this this project when we talk about Northern Ireland now it's all about the win over Spain and that's it it's that's it right but the lead into this game is very 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 tense and it's not the the vibe certainly on on the outside in the in the in the environment around them is not right like if you picked up the newspapers yeah, in Northern sorry, Ireland just to, to chime in here publicly tense because sometimes what we're doing is telling you the stories yes. from the autobiographies after is behind the scenes this is all out there yeah. It's all out there, but it's been sort of, I won't say forgotten, but it's just not been mentioned because it's not really relevant now because they won the game. But on the morning of the game, there was stories in the Belfast press 
that the substitute goalkeeper, the second goalkeeper, Jim Platt, had pulled stumps. He wasn't happy over being included in the first two games and he had told Billy Bingham he doesn't want to be involved. And indeed, George Dunlop, the third choice keeper, does take over uh, on the bench that night. Now, if you looked at the Belfast newsletter that day, you would have seen quotes from Platt saying, I don't want to be involved in any slanging match, but if you ask me, will I play under Billy Bingham again? The answer is no. Uh, Jimmy Dubois, the, the reporter for the newsletter, also reported that it was alleged that Bingham told Platt he would be number one in Spain after a game against Wales the previous month. And the players told Dubois, according to the reporter, that Platt only stayed on because his wife and four-year-old child were in Spain with him. Uh, down south, in the evening press, Bingham is not the most popular of managers with his players and several senior players not in the side are unhappy with, his hand, unhappy with his handling of the World Cup campaign. This is all This is all floating around. However, if you picked up the Belfast Telegraph, and this probably speaks to editions and later editions coming on in the day and so on, Malcolm Brody, the the venerable uh, Northern Ireland football correspondent of decades had a different take. He, his, his first paragraph, Middlesbrough's 31-year-old goalkeeper Jim Platt today officially retracted his statement to the press that he did not wish to play for Northern Ireland again under Billy Bingham after peace talks here today with Irish FA President Harry Cavan, our old buddy. Platt, disappointed at not being named in any of the sides so far, has said he had never refused to play for Northern Ireland. Never at any time did I say that I wasn't available for my country. I'm happy it has all been sorted out after speaking to Mr. Cavan, and I look forward to a good result against Spain tonight, said Platt, wearing a black sweater and shorts as he addressed a packed press conference. It was a climax of a morning of frantic activity, much speculation, and even wild rumours that he will be sent home, even though the team are scheduled to do just that on Sunday if defeated tonight. So that's the, that's the vibe, like. The vibe. And the press are saying there's no way they can get a result. So, I mean, it's... It's amazing what it's sure look at I suppose victory kind of just glass glasses over it paints over everything, doesn't it? Let's let's look at the result they needed to get. Because because the the win the win like Northern Ireland to finish top of the group need to win. A high scoring draw might be enough for them. Let's remember the other games in the group are finished. The high scoring draw puts them into a group with England and West Germany. Now, Spain know that if Northern Ireland win, they're into that group with England and West Germany. So there's a tension here. While the Belfast press might have been obsessed with Jim Platt, the Spanish press were obsessed with the lazy Northern Irish drunkards. Are they talking about Billy their, Bingham their supporters pulled, like, or the, something? The, the, well, no, I mean, as in the players, what? like Billy Bingham pulled a stroke. Well, the players actually pulled a stroke. So what occurred there was he said to them, after the previous game, you know, have a, have a couple of beers back at the hotel, relax around the pool. He wanted them to enjoy themselves. Now, Tommy Cassidy had the misfortune to fall asleep in the deck chair at the pool. So the guys th- threw a hat on, put everybody's cans around him. And then the Spanish press arrived in and took a photo of Tommy Cassidy with all these empties. And this was what led to the suggestion. Now, Billy Bingham is fuming with the players that that's a photo that gets into the Spanish papers. I don't see how this is bad for Billy. I need to, someone needs to but press it, it actually, to say, Billy, this is not bad. <laughs> this, this is great because that it just feeds into the Spanish see them as lazy drunkards. And that's what they're talking about. And, and, and that's going to seep in. You know that's going to seep into what the Spanish team expect and what the Spanish supporters expect. So what they don't expect is this team that comes at them all energy. And I mean, Bingham had decided, he'd gone through everything the night before with the players. He knew 
that they weren't going to be able to win the midfield battle. So he just decided they would crowd the midfield battle and not allow the Spanish to play through them. Now, apparently Martin O'Neill also on that night spoke to the players about what was going to be required and what they would need to do and what they were capable of. But that's what everybody talks about in the aftermath of the result. Those two individuals, Billy Bingham, the manager, and Martin O'Neill, the captain, were the ones that galvanised them for this win. It is incredible, Billy Joe, to watch the likes of David McCreary uh, in this game and uh, just running the legs off uh, Spanish players, winning ball, one twos, getting it again. Like these guys just reach other, just a whole other level. Yeah, I was very impressed with him, but I suppose I think it starts with Hamilton and Armstrong, kind of down the right hand side, and that, that's where the goal is essentially made. But I think you see, you see, you see. You know that was obviously a tactic that they noticed a weakness uh, on the uh, in the on the left back uh, for Spain and and just constantly went, constantly went at it and Hamilton pulled pulled out there. I think in terms of the goal, the way it was built up, uh, maybe first on McCreary. Uh, I I thought he was outstanding to, to be brutally honest, and I know we, we he got absolutely clattered in that he in got that a first half. Front. And, it can only yeah, be yeah. described but, uh, as a shirt front. Down, you know, he's going full pace. Your man steps across in front of him, down, shoulders right into his chest, and 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 clips. And him. how but, about that for know, referee? Man, what do you give for that that offence? A corner and no booking. Unbelievable! Yeah, Not even a foul. No, like. I mean, he steps across him. He absolutely smashes him. I mean, McCreary's clean. Nowadays, it's a red card. And a court appearance. Like, he, it's Alessanko, the Barcelona defender, just steps across and smashes McCreary in the chest. Like, it happens about three or four minutes before half time. And McCreary's still holding his chest and shoulders. He's walking off at half time. But any man, any man that has played for the Tulsa Roughnecks <laughs> is able to take that. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, clearly. I, the, the, the Northern Ireland players were worried about the referee in advance of the game because, like, this guy, he's, he's, he's Paraguayan, is he? This That's is right, the yeah. first time he's ever refereed a match between two European teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, his only experience of refereeing a match involving a European team before this is a New York Cosmos friendly that he's he's somehow. And I mean, Pat Jennings spoke about it before, and we were worried more. Or afterwards, sorry, we were worried worried more by the referee than the Spanish players. The fear that he might award a penalty against us was uppermost in our minds. We had seen Spain get doubtful penalties in both their previous matches. And the last thing we wanted was to be the fall guys for a hat-trick. Martin O'Neill had shared the same concern. I'm taking this from Evan Marshall's book, Fields of Wonder, where he's spoken to the players for the book. Um, We do not fear the Spanish team, but we are a bit apprehensive about the influence of their fans on the referee here in Valencia. We have seen how the referees buckle under pressure from the people on the terraces. Like, there's yeah. a very real concern that the slightest little mistake by one of their players in the penalty area yeah. will be punished. Yeah, well, I suppose they were looking in that regard. So just getting back to the goal, I think it is important to, to mention it. Like, it was a pretty good move, albeit with a, a goalkeeping error in the middle of it. And it, it was manufactured by... Armstrong's and Hamilton's hard running, and you know, minute ha- half time, two minutes after half time, first chance they were going to do get to get on the ball, take it away. 
yeah, and 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 I look, you know, Armstrong is involved in it, in, in you know, in a central area, and and Hamilton gets it on the right wing, and he 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 powers. The only way to describe it, he powers up that right wing, and he gets a touch on a ball that knocks it kind of in behind the fullback, and he does the right thing. He hits it low and hard across across the the penalty box. You know, he knows he's only one forward up there. The goalkeeper is in, you know, two two minds. He really probably should let it run. You know, Armstrong's not going to reach it, but he does. He's not aware of that. Arcanada dives out and he just palms it right into Jerry Armstrong's path, and and you can just see the the brain Armstrong's brain. Oh, there it is! Billy Joel walked away from he's the gone back. He's liking this. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a good run up to this one. No, I, 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 he, his brain is kicked into gear where he knows. Okay, the go. I have a goalkeeper in front of me, and I have two defenders. What's the thing to do here? Do I take a touch? Touch. Oh, and and I'll be bottled up. No, he just slows himself down, concentrates, makes a really strong connection with the ball, and keeps it down low and hard. Goes in under the goalkeeper. Uh, great finish. So I, I think you, you see there in that goal the athleticism and desire of the Northern Irish players, but at the same time the cool headedness and the concentration at the end to to make it count. And, uh, you know, probably the most important goal in Northern Ireland history. No doubt. And, yeah, that, that was a point I was going to make. It, it, it encapsulates everything really about Northern Ireland in this tournament. Like the pressure, the pressure that's exerted on the Spanish in possession before they lose the ball. Um, Sanchez, Ufarte, who's one of their more creative players, as Hustle, Gardilio, the left the, the left side of the player. He's a, good, he's a good player, but he's he's just he just loses the ball. Uh, it's Jimmy Nickel. The right back again, who's having a great oh, tournament. You know what I mean? One of these, you know, one of one of these guys which maybe you don't immediately think of with Northern Ireland and that team, but he's had a great tournament. And Armstrong comes away, and as as Billy Joe says, athleticism, power, um, and okay, Arcanada makes a mess of it, but Armstrong is the only one who's scoring goals for him in this tournament, and hits it low and hard. Uh, and he's, as he said himself, as he said himself many times since, all you could see was bodies in front of him. But what I loved was. The, the immediate aftermath of the goal. Number one, the atmosphere is unbelievable. It is the it is, it is the definition of a cauldron. And when he scores, it's like pressing mute on your TV. And then the the Northern Irish are all over Armstrong, and he comes out of the scrum of players, and he looks totally stunned. Jerry Armstrong. It's like first thing I do is I got to get air in. He's like, <gasps> the look on his face is complete disbelief. Norman it's Whiteside almost, has to tell him he scored a goal. Really? That's yeah. That's what they've said really? afterwards. Like he's he's so stunned that he's actually done it. Like Whiteside says, "Big man, wow. big man, you got the goal. You got the goal." Wow, that's wow. brilliant. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing moment. And you know, I mean, to be fair to the North, and you know, we have kind of you know straight away from the violence. We got to get back to that. But I mean, just as a general thing about Spain, you know, we mentioned this Spanish team for for, you know, for people of a certain age who don't recall the. Spanish football pre oh, sorry, just to jump in here. And, and this that. is a stunning yeah. experience for me. And I don't know what you guys think, but I'm like all I've grown up with was Spain were incredibly skillful but calamitous and failures till finally it comes together and they're both skillful, amazing, and they're winners to whatever they are at the moment. Yeah. I'm not even sure. But I cannot understand this incarnation of Spanish football. Billy Joe's tried to give us a bit of context there, and I was like, okay, right. Like this is what is this? Who is the team I'm looking at? They're horrible. <laughs> They lack a cutting edge big time. I mean, if you're looking at it just from a football point of view, before we get into the raw violence of the whole thing and what's driving it, like they they lack they lack a cutting edge up front. I mean, really, when you look through the game, 
most of their chances are from crosses, headers. There's there, in a couple of minutes into the game, um, Juanito, the very creative Real Madrid player, plays a one-two with Uferte, who goes straight through, and Jennings tears out and dives on the ball at his feet. That's after about four or five minutes. That's it, really. There's one moment of wild panic towards the end. Well, just before uh, the where, final whistle, yeah. Yeah, where Jennings sort of Jennings sort of hesitates and a ball kind of bounces and it's kind of hanging in the air and, uh, you know, Juanito is there and Jennings is going to, uh, uh, but he gets it and he it's fine. But other than that, they'd never, I mean, compared to Spanish teams of later years, they never open them up. And that's what struck me. They never, ever looked like they were going to open them up. And in many ways, Northern Ireland were set up in ways for this game. They also lose a man, of course. Northern Ireland are down to 10 men for the last half an hour. And if any team in this World Cup is set up to defend for the last half an hour with 10 men, it's Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's totally, totally them. And I mean, that incident where Maldonado gets sent off, he he does not deserve to be sent off. Like, it's... No. It's a yellow card at best. It's retaliation. He pushes. Describe it. Describe it now, because I, I'm not sure. I, I thought it was a red card because he, he he pushes him in the uh, he pushes next row face. Well, it, I think I thought it was pushed him on the shoulder. Looking at it, I have to be honest. I I I, I thought it was a nothing. <laughs> like in the context of what we've seen in this game, and I oh, in the context I, of what we've seen I, in the game, it's nothing. Like, and Camacho, yeah. like I think I think what what produces the red card is Camacho plays for yeah. it, like. He, he's immediately appealing to the referee, make gesticulating that he's been hit in the face. Camacho gets Maldonado sent off in this instance. But you're right. Northern Ireland are the one team that are set up to defend with 10 men. They're going to get to the finish line. It all just depends. Don't concede any chances. And that final moment that you talked about with Pat Jennings, there's kind of a moment of doubt where he doesn't know to come off his line. And, and I think he later said he, he couldn't have made it. So he kind of holds, and then it's this. He gets a second opportunity. That is a, one of the saves of the World Cup. Yeah. And by the way, the church bells on Patch Endings, okay, for this. We know from the last game he's injured. We've just had the substitute goalkeeper make an issue out of not being the number one. The younger man, the thirty-one-year-old goalkeeper who's fully fit, has got to the absolute breaking point. There is pressure, and he looks as cool as ice. Except for that little bit at the end. At every stage well, except for that one little bit at the end where you're like, oh, has he been judged? I want to. Oh, no. He, he was but, he, right. but he, he got, got it. it. He but really he got, got it. it. That's the point. He knew. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I no, I think your man Qu- Quinny came on as well. I think he had a chance maybe about the seventy fifth minute as well, where he took something on the half turn inside the box yeah. and blasted it over. Uh, but you're right, Mick. Other than, that's all they created. Other than that, and it was really, really impressive uh, defensive display in terms of just how calm they are. And I think somebody like Martin O'Neill had a big influence in, in that regard because always seemed to be calm. Wasn't the greatest to watch at times. Sometimes they played two or three passes to pass it back to Jennings. So it wasn't just one pass back to Pat Jennings. It was like a, 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 it was passed inside to Martin O'Neill and Martin O'Neill played it back to Jennings and it was kind of, it, it was it was what needed to be done. Martin O'Neill does keepy uppies at the end of this game in the opposing corner. And you're looking at it going, wow, like the the absolute like this isn't Diego Maradona, you know, in the warm-up. This yeah. this is Martin <laughs> O'Neill in the greatest World Cup victory in Northern Ireland's history, 
doing keepy up. He's in the corner. Now, he, he, he has said since, I was hoping because we were running out of time and Spain were getting so frustrated, genuinely, that the fellow would come over and sweep me into the stand so that we'd get a free, tick, free kick there and we could take up some more time. That was the reason for it. No one wants to be tackled that brutally, but I wanted to be taken out of the game so that we could take our time over the free, free kick. I thought the guy would think, that's a bit arrogant, and come and hit me. You like to think that with it being a World Cup, someone out there, somewhere in the ether would think, that's a nice bit of skill, but that wasn't my intention. It was hopefully getting fouled up there and somebody coming in and cleaving me. And you know what? Thinking back on the game, Martin O'Neill might have been one of the few Northern Ireland players who escaped getting split in two in this game. So he might have been feeling left out at that I can't stage. work out, Billy Joe, if Martin O'Neill was like lording it over this entire game and like absolutely the star or like is it more, was it just more a present thing? Because I, I don't really know if I can remember too many amazing moments from no, no, I, I think it was his calmness in those, you know, that it was, he exuded calm in the latter, in that, in the latter stages, last 20 minutes of the game. That's where I was impressed with him. I, th- I think that, you know, Northern Ireland don't get the win without the physicality and the running power of Hamilton Armstrong and Whiteside mm-hmm. to a lesser extent yeah. in, in for that opening 55 minutes. Yeah. Because they were always a threat. They were always putting them under pressure. Even McCreary as well. Like His ability to go back then and slot in at left back when Donaghy is sent off. It's and amazing. I think they even make a substitution. They make a substitution and I think, and he, 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 won't, he won't replace it and it's the right decision. But, but, but you know, I, I probably always pick up on some of these commentaries. It was an absolute pleasure to, uh, to watch one of these games with English commentary. You know, where we watch them often, you don't know what language you're getting them in. And that gives you some sort of insight as well. But Jimmy Hill, I was listening to Jimmy Hill through this and he was being quite, uh, he was quite disgruntled really with the uh, gamesmanship as well as the violence of, of the he, Spanish players. He, he predicted it was thinking, going to be a thinking, scandal, some of the Spanish play yeah, at one stage. Like 20, he was really 24 going minutes, in. 24 minutes in. They have 24 yeah. minutes in. He says, this game will go on to be a disgrace to football. That's only after 24 and minutes. It's, and it's not 24 minutes going? after Winter Beyonce had finished. <laughs> any, <laughs> any idea where the battle Jimmy ended up that night? Oh, hotel. When the Sounds Northern good. Ireland team arrived back at their hotel many hours later because there'd been the small matter of drug tests to do mm. with dehydrated Jerry players. Armstrong, yeah, I think. That's the a story problem. in itself. But Jimmy Hill was waiting for them at the team hotel with champagne. Ah, wow. Yeah. He wouldn't have done that for Scotland, like, I tell yeah, you. Well, Just ask Kevin. There's objective well, journalism. He, and he even, got a, he even got a dig in at Scotland in the commentary. He did. He said... Uh, He's, he, he was going on about the Irish being a better running team than the Scots, more willing to chase things down. The only, the only thing he gave back to the Scots was that maybe the Scots were a bit classier, but, you know, that, you know, where, 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 where are they now? Huh? Where are they now? Well, while I was watching, I was thinking, if Jimmy thinks this is bad, I'm glad he didn't have to experience like Atletico Madrid full, full metal shithousery in the Champions League because that would have really drove him over the edge. Well, the yeah, thing, sorry, the thing, I think that was Davis, driving yeah. the... <laughs> I, I think the thing that was driving this a little bit was the fact that Barcelona had played Tottenham yeah, in the yeah, European yeah, Cup Winners' Cup yeah. semi-final the previous month, which over two legs, which was again a very rough affair, particularly the White Hart Lane game. Um, so that was in the back of their heads, and they kept they kept going. I mean, he says, I mean, Jimmy had stuff you just wouldn't say now. He said, you know, Spanish people, as we've learned, John, 
Matson, uh, you know, lovely people off the field, lovely people off the field, but, and I quote, they can be disgusting on it at times. So okay, like, so segue I mean, here, you know what? segue here. I'm not going to say I agree with Jimmy Hill, but Juanito, we need to just, this is our chance to talk about Juanito. He gets a yellow well, card Juanito, in this match, Juanito. which is hard earned because there aren't many, despite the fact they should have had about 20. Bizarrely, bizarrely, Juanito gets a gets a yellow card for tapping Sammy McElroy on the punch in the head. The, the lead up just to the yellow card, because as you said, they were hard earned. Camacho had actually given a right kick to Sammy McElroy. Uh, McElroy kind of got up, just checking with his legs still there. And Juanito came over and just kind of tapped him on the back of the head. Um, and he gets a yellow card. Now, two minutes later, Norman Whiteside flattens Juanito. That was bad. The crowd go crazy. Um, but Juanito, I suppose, in some ways, kind of, well, like, you, you couldn't say he kind of captures the spirit of the team because he's a bit extreme, God bless him. But like there was the aggression that was in Spanish football at the time was something that had been fostered for decades. This kind of, um, as, as it would have been seen by Franco and his, his accolades, this kind of manly approach to football, this kind of combative, warlike approach to playing. But Juanito um, played for Real Madrid. He had an incredibly checkered career. So just to give you a few, some of his highlights. So in a match in Belgrade against Yugoslavia for Spain in 1976, he was, he was having substituted. He was coming off the field and he made the kind of, you know, tosser gesture to the fans as he was coming mm. off. Uh, and as he got to the sideline, a bottle came flying out of the stand and hit him flush on the head and knocked him out cold. Now, that was done unto Juanito, but what Juanito did unto others uh, was another job again. So 1978, we move on. He was banned from all European competition for two years uh, after assaulting a referee during a Real Madrid game against Grasshopper Zurich. Now, you'd think that it softened his cough, and maybe it did for a while. Uh, he went on to be, become a legend with Real Madrid, and they still chant his name on the seventh, number seven was his number, and they chant his name on the seventh minute uh, of their home games. But no, many years later, 1987, he comes back uh, in a European game against Bayern Munich and gets banned for four years for stamping on Lothar Mateus's back. But not just his back. He comes back then to stamp on his head while standing right beside the referee. And I will dig out the footage because there is footage out there of these instances. It's, it's unbelievable. unbelievable. And that more or less that it's more or less finishes his real career. The poor man dies in a car crash age 37, so he's not with us anymore. But as I say, he, he is something of a cult hero. Like Camacho, uh, just to give you a sense of, of, of how they dealt with Juanito, he said it was useless to tell Juanito not to do something because he wouldn't listen anyway. But it is also worth saying that Juanito is not the worst culprit no, on this not. night. No, fair point. But John Watson at one stage, and I couldn't remember, and I'm guessing it wasn't Juanito, said that one of the Spanish players, I think it was Sanchez, was, you know, so, sort of a moral compass for the rest of the squad. And I thought that was quite nice. <laughs> that comes just spinning. It's just spinning. Like. Yeah. They just need one. I think we got to start moving on, but I'm going to leave the final word, word to Billy Bingham. What can I say? It is absolutely fantastic. The decisions by the referee were quite harsh against us. There was a lot of physical contact, and the referee seemed to take it out on us. But we did marvellously well, particularly when we were down to 10 men. They killed the Spanish bull in its own ring. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, before we just before we do finish it up, I mean, the reaction in Spain, of course, you can imagine. On one, you know, in, in, They're still in the tournament. They as, end up in the tougher group and they've lost. Yeah, and they've lost. Spain, a disaster. The performance of our players was shameless. 
El Pais bracketed the, the Spanish performance with the Austria-West Germany game. Yesterday was a day of shame. Like, it was bad. It was bad. But on the Northern Irish side, I mean, there's some lovely, lovely, lovely uh, bits of footage um, and bits of detail about what... So, as as Kieran mentioned earlier, they were late getting back to their base in Valencia, but there was fireworks when they got back in the city anyway. And there was a big... Like, there was a big wooden atlas with a football on his back that was... It was a structure that was put there for the World Cup. And to mark the end of Valencia's World Cup experience, they were burning it. So, that was... F- on in you know in flames there's fireworks felix healy our buddy felix grabs the microphone sings them into the into into, into the wee hours oh. i think the wee hours are like breakfast time the next morning and i i, I was when i when i read that i was immediately <laughs> going how many well, days i don't think and that's the thing i don't think they had anything organized we'll get to that we'll get they, to that in the next round because no and billy, and he, billy bingham opened physically himself opened the gates of the hotel to let in the northern ireland supporters I want to mention those friends because there's like there's probably I'm guessing because you can hear them chanting Northern Ireland after the goal make so I, I'm just going to take a stab and say there's pro- there could be about two and a half thousand in there yes uh, yeah. maybe but like they make a good bit of noise I love the shots of them celebrating in their little pockets and they're shaking hands like, uh, yeah. what a moment if you were a Northern Ireland football fan who were at who was at that game it's the greatest it's the greatest and you know, I mean, trying to kind of put that in context, right? So it's gone down as the greatest win in the history of Northern Ireland football. Um, my immediate reaction was, did these guys not get to the World Cup quarterfinal in 1958? Surely there was something else there. But I will defer to the aforementioned Malcolm Brody on this one. The man who, to that point, had seen every single Northern Ireland post-war international. He considered, in his piece the following day, he considers a victory over Czechoslovakia in 1958 there was a two-all draw with Germany. He considered the British Championship wins of 1914 and 1980 and a famous draw against England where Peter Doherty, one of their great players, headed the equaliser. Has Malcolm been in suspended animation at some stage Malcolm between lived forever, 1914 he lived and 1992? He said, he said, nothing compares with this in my book, having watched every post-war Northern Ireland football match. So, look, he's a guy who's seen every single match and if he reckons it's the best... I like the way you mentioned 1914 because we can share in that because there was one team at that point but let's not go there All right, uh, Jerry Armstrong there's a brilliant bit on the front of the Belfast Telegraph the day after because they send a photographer over to his family home and they, it, there's there's eight family members there and sure it's great it's so wonderful like they're they take a picture in the front room and they're delighted his uncle Eamon and his wife Mar- and, and their, his wife Marion cousins Una and Leon sisters Sinead and Grania and nephew baby Paul are there and of course his mum and dad are there like it's it's fantastic they go on they they, they, they go on and they, they check about Norman Whiteside Norman Whiteside rings home after the game to hear that the people outside are dancing in the street and of course like that's the other thing about this thing of course it gets kind of metamorphosed or, or kind of inflated into this sort of uniting um, element in in a community that's completely and utterly split and riven by sectarian violence that has completely gripped Northern Ireland at that point when of course life is never that simple really uh, it certainly did bring people out, and there was four Catholics on that team, and that certainly, that that certainly generated a kind of a sense that, well, you know, if we all work together, maybe anything is possible. But equally, at the same time, an IRA bomb went off in Belfast, shattering windows and injuring a number of nurses who came out of who were just finishing up their their shift on the same day. So, you know, not everything can be solved by football, unfortunately. 
Team of the day, the only question is, did it get all 11? And if it's 10, how do you drop one? That's the question. This is how, this is the day. Because like, you've got England and Kuwait, absolute putrid. Uh, Billy Joe, are going to add any Austrians or West Germans in this? No. I, I, I cannot pick Hans Krankel, even though he did score a great goal against West Germany in 1978. I was considering it, but like, it's not the... Litbarski. Litbarski. No. He's playing. No. Nah, it's I not going to make it, is he? Nah. And Hans, Hans Krankel as well was Pichichi for Barcelona one year, I think seven, late was, 70s. So, uh, um, no, no, look here. You, 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 were, you, you no. swerved we're, we're, that we're, one. No, we're that clearly one. picking seven. Like about seven Northern Ireland players. Three, three, three Kuwaiti players. Well, three Kuwaiti players. Let's do it. So, I mean, I presume... Passes. Pat Jennings has to be brilliant, brilliant performance. I, I like, I mean, Jimmy Nicola right back again for me. Three. I mean, he's been, I mean, anytime he's played, three I think times. he's made our team. Yeah, of the day. Team of the day, three times. Do you know who's going left back for me? Because he switched sides for this game. Oh, oh. Mick Mills. In order to accommodate Phil Neal, he's moved to left back. So that you know, he's he's having a really solid World Cup. He's deputising as captain, and he's now. I would only argue Gardilio from Spain, but he does give the ball away for the goal. I think he's about the only Spanish player who kind of comes out with any kind of vigor. But I wouldn't argue Mick Mills either. Chris Nichol was very good today. John McClelland as well. John McClelland is outstanding, lads. You, you, you have to, the, the two Northern Ireland centre halves yeah. have to be. Yeah, they're yeah. both in then. Yeah. Maldonado no doesn't make it possibly just because he only made it 60 minutes. True, no fault of his own, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> Martin O'Neill uh, obviously has to be in there. Well, uh, we're playing a 4 3 3. I think a 4 3 3 is the appropriate uh, formation if you look at it, taking it from the front to back. All righty. So you're taking it from front to back. So uh, you, you want us now to pop into the forward well, I think, line before I think, we populate I think the middle. It informs you. Look here, this is the way you do these things. You pick the glamour players first <laughs> in all these situations. So like, yeah. you, can start, you can start at the back all you want. So, you can start at the back all you want, but you inevitably end, end up <laughs> jump over midfield and go to the forward. Go so, on, Bijo, give us your three. So. Give us your Tre- three. Trevor, Fra- Trevor well, Francis, Trevor Francis, Billy Hamilton, and you, you and read Jerry. my mind. Ah, you can't disagree mind. with that. And that just leaves leaves room for three. Then uh, Martin O'Neill have mentioned David McCreary and Sammy McIlroy. I just can't disagree. Wow. Fifty minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, was there anybody McElroy got injured? Anybody? Tommy Cassidy comes on. You're just he's trying to Burnley. push it. This Rob the Burnley fan, by the way, so he's just trying to push someone in there. T- Tommy Cassidy Tommy for Cassidy. the yeah. Throw Tommy Cassidy in. Ah, uh, this Come is the this I know wait now. Wait now, wait now. We had it this is this is too big a day for that. We I'll tell you what I'll, I'll tell you what we could do though. We had an honorary substitute when Felix Healy was here. We could have Tommy Cassidy as an honorary substitute. Right, well, honorary substitute. Okay, yeah. So we'll have an honorary substitute. So our three midfielders are Martin O'Neill, David McIlroy or Norman Whiteside get in there. I thought Whiteside, like he had a yeah. good shift. He's still this boy's 17. I know our, our Whiteside can Whiteside can go with midfield. Okay, fair enough. So we got, let's just count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine Northern Irish players plus the sub. Brilliant. Love it. That's good going. And I'm sure if if West Germany and Austria had actually played a football match, we'd probably have put a few of them in there. So it's purely on the basis that it was the most competitive game. A couple of dinging stories from that. The players, the non-playing members of the Northern Ireland team had to get into the game 
in the press box to watch. Oh, it. Jesus, right? How did that go? Uh, because, uh, as I understand it, on, on our previous episode with Felix, he mentioned that, that he was rooming with a great character named Bobby Campbell. Bobby Campbell was the designated player to distribute oh, tickets to the non-playing members of the squad. Oh, are you serious? Bobby sold them on the streets. Uh, this, oh, yes. this I found in Evan, Evan Marshall's think, book, Bills of Wonder, The Incredible I think, Story of I think the source is very important. Very important. I like Please tell me he sold it to Northern Ireland fans, at least. Oh, sure. All right, that's it for today because it's been an epic day. That's the end of the first round, which sounds like... Because we're further along than that, surely. But we have X amount of days left. We're over the halfway. We're over the halfway. Adios, amigos. Adios, indeed.